So, I, I, want to, um, I want to talk to you this morning about developing a generous spirit. Now, let me um, stop and go slow here because here's what happened. Here's the problem, right? A, per, a certain percentage of the room has already gone, right? Because here's the problem. As soon as I say generous, right? The first word that comes into mind is tithe. And then here's the problem with that. Then it becomes a dualistic debate of, am I for it or against it? Which actually misses the entire point. Because here's the thing. It's not the tithe and it's not generosity that's so important. It's our imagination of how that works out that's important, right? So there's doctrine or belief or values, whatever word you want to put on it. There's doctrine and that's belief. But then there is imagination of how that doctrine works out. And what's far more important than what you believe is how you believe what you believe. So what's far more important than what you believe is your imagination of how does that work out. And when there's a gap between what you believe and what, how you see it working out, that cr- it creates anxiety and problems. Like, I'll give you a great example. How many of us would believe that we are, we are forgiven by the finished work of Jesus Christ, right? That's a, that all of us, right? Don't be too excited about that, right? But that, right, that, that's, that's a pretty good news story, right? right? So we, here's the problem, though. It's possible to believe that with, with, with everything that we can mentally assent on the bullet point on the pamphlet. We, we can believe that with everything. But if in our imagination we see ourselves guilty, our emotions will attach to the imagination of how it works, not to the belief. And so what's more important than believing the right things is making sure our imagination obeys the Christ that we are believing in. Because here's the thing, right? I've never met anybody that rejected Jesus. Never in my life. Have I ever met anyone who rejected Jesus? I've met lots of people who rejected the image of Jesus presented to them, right? And so there's a difference between the real Jesus and then someone's imagination of what Jesus might be. And oftentimes the people rejecting Jesus are simply resisting an image of Jesus that should be resisted anyway. Like you, 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 talk, you talk to an atheist and the atheist says, I don't believe in God, right? And, and, so, uh, and so a good-hearted person doesn't fight. It's ridiculous, right? They go, oh, tell me what you don't believe in. And then they go, well, I don't believe God is this, 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 or this. And I just go, is that what makes an atheist? Is an atheist somebody that doesn't believe a God that is this, 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 and this? Yes. Well, I guess I'm an atheist, right? Because what, what, what they're resisting is not God. They're resisting an image of God that should be resisted anyway, right? Now, you say, what does this have to do with generosity? Everything. Because here's the thing, right? When I say the word tithe, in 99% of cases, it's not tithe that comes to our mind. It's our imagination of what we think tithing is. And, and when, I, when, when I say generosity, it's not what generosity is. It's our imagination of what generosity is. So here's what I'm asking you to do. If you'll, be, if you'll have enough faith to do this, right? And I'm going to let you off the hook. If for 40 minutes, can I have 40 minutes to try to change your imagination? About, to give you a new image of what this could look like. And if you'll, if, you'll, if you'll enter into what philosophers call a suspended space. A suspended space is when you walk into an environment and you consciously choose to humble yourself and leave your preconceived notion up in the sky some, in suspended space. And you fully engage with the wrestling here. And here's the thing. After 40 minutes, if you fully engage with this, you are more than welcome 
to absolutely go right back to what you were, right? You're totally free. You're totally free to just pick up the imagination you thought before. But I'm betting on something. I'm betting if you give me 40 minutes, I'm betting I can give you a better imagination. Not a better doctrine, but a better imagination. And that is fundamentally different. That is fundamentally different. Now, a, a couple of a couple things. So, so there's three abuses that, are, that, that I find are primary when we talk about tithing. All right, so, so if you bring that first slide up for me, the, the three are, one would be the tithe is some sort of rule to attain God's favor. So, so there's any sort of belief that, that if, that tithers, that God feels fundamentally different about people who tithe than people who don't. And if that's been in any part of your past, in any part of anybody that's ever intimated that view and it created that imagination. And she, so because of that, you're like, I'm against that. I want you to know I stand with you. I'm with you too. I'm against any notion that there's any ritual that will fundamentally change God's basic disposition toward us. Right? Right? So that is an image of tithing that should be resisted. There's a second one that should be resisted, and that is the tithe is an end to itself. So the idea that, ah, if I could just get this right, then I will feel more whole, more complete. No, you won't. No, you won't. If you do tithing perfectly and you still feel empty on the inside... And then you tithe perfectly. You're just a tithing, feeling empty on the inside person. It, it, the tithe is not an end to itself. The tithe is a framework that helps us develop something far more profound. And we're going to talk about that, right? The third abuse, which I absolutely stand against, is that the tithe is magic. Here's what that sounds like, right? Hey! Hey, hey! If you just tithe, your finances will automatically work out. No, it won't. Hey, oh, listen, if you tithe and then you buy a $60,000 car on a $50,000 income, you're going to be broke. Why? Because buying a $60,000 car on a $50,000 income is stupid. And if you tithe, you're just a tithing stupid person, right? That doesn't work. The idea that, oh, hey, 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 you know what? Act as stupid as you want and then tithe. It'll all work out. There is a word that, that's not new theology. It's very old. It finds its basis in Latin. The word for it is bulimus crapimus, okay? The idea that, is that people say, people say, I'm against tithing because it doesn't work. And you go, well, what doesn't work? What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, I tithed and I was still broke. But then you talk to them and you're like, they, they, were, they were buying things they can't afford with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. <laughs> of course they're going to be broke, right? The, the, the tithe is not magic. Like, woohoo, sprinkle some tithe dust on your stupidity and all it automatically, right? No, no. And, and if that's your imagination, I stand with you. If you're like, I'm against this idea that the tithe is some magic fairy dust that we can sprinkle on all levels of stupidity and suddenly it'll work out. I'm with you, right? But I think what we're going to find in scripture is a better story. It's a better story. Couple of thoughts on this. One, money is a great servant, but a horrible master. So the goal of what we're talking about is that every month you tell your money where it must do. You tell, hey, this is what you're going to do for me this month, money. Because here's what free people do. Free people tell their money where to go. Slaves, the money tells them where to go, right? So the last thing you want is on the first of the month, money go. Well, I'm going to be going to Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Ford Motor Credit. I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be doing all this. No, no. That's the last thing. We, we, we want something more profound than forgiveness. We want something called freedom. And freedom financially is treating our money where we are, the, we are the masters and it is the servant. Money's a great servant, but a horrible master. Number two, 
in building a Christ-centered community, how we think about our stuff is of utmost importance. Like, if your whole goal is to go to heaven when you die, don't worry about what I'm saying now. Sort of irrelevant. Like, if you could honestly say, my entire goal in life is to go to heaven after death. Eh, okay, whatever. You're um, boring. But nonetheless, uh, uh, none, of, none, none of this really matters. But, but should that really be our goal? Like, really? How, like, if heaven and hell isn't the issue, is Jesus still worth following? I, I would say he is. I, I don't follow Jesus so I can go to heaven. I follow Jesus because I actually believe he has the best way to live on the earth. Right? And that's more compelling, right? That's more compelling. So, so, so now, now that we're all cheering that, well, now we got to think about our stuff. Because if the goal isn't to go somewhere else, but to bring to somewhere else here, whoo, well, how we think about our stuff is of utmost importance. Three, the seemingly small choices we make today affect big things tomorrow. Changing your life financially is just like changing your life in any other area. It's normally not the big profound steps. It's normally the small steps held true over a long period of time. It's normally, hey, the, 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 biggest, the biggest changes in your life have not been the big profound yeses. Actually, if we're honest, the biggest changes in our life have been the small yeses that we held to. It's the small yeses that we held to. So, and so when we think about money, listen, if our goal is to get to the end of the day, well, we could do almost whatever we want. But if the goal is to be in five years in a different place, then that requires small changes that we hold to over a period of time, right? And that's true financially and and in every other way. Listen, you can't act foolishly financially and go, well, it's just a six-month thing. Yeah, but that six-month thing takes you on a trajectory that you might be paying for for five years, I mean, I, I know someone personally who's still paying for a coffee they bought seven years ago because they put it on a credit card and just been paying the minimum payment every, and it's, it's become a lifestyle. So that, let's say it this way, next one. Um, how did you, a couple questions, how did you get what you have? How, how did you attain what you have? There's, there's only two ways to attain things. One is to work for it and earn it. The other way is somebody gave it to you. Okay? That's it. That is it, right? Like, if you drove a car here today and you worked for it and paid for it, it's your car. If you drove a car here today that someone gave you, that is also your car. But if you drove a car here today and you neither paid for it nor anybody gave it to you, I would suggest you stole it. So the imagination is, is, is how did I get what I had? There's two ways to think about it. One, is to think about my whole life as I worked for it, I earned it, it's my stuff. The other way to think about it is everything in my life is a gift. Both are legitimate. Both are legitimate. Here's the thing. The first imagination leads to a fundamental different way of thinking about our things than the second imagination. Because the second imagination says, if all of my life is a gift, then I need to do what the gift giver wants me to do with that gift. Right? Right? So, so, and once again, once again, they're just fundamentally different imaginations. Right? So, so the question would be, am I stealing? See, theft in Hebrew is, ready? Get ready. Here we go. It's taking something that's not yours. <laughs> but, there's another definition of theft in Hebrew, and that is keeping something for yourself that the master meant for somebody else. Right? So you didn't take, right? Right? So, 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 and you know this, like, if, if, if you, if you give someone, if you handed me a hundred dollars and said, Shane, I don't want that person to know about it. I don't know, want them to know it's for me. So would you do, just say it's a blessing? For, hey, would you give that hundred dollars to somebody? And I go, sure. And I walk away and put it in my pocket. I stole it. I stole it. It's taking something the gift giver gave intended for somebody else and taking it as my own. 
And that leads me to a whole nother different set of questions. Like a couple things, another question, three. Do, do we need more than a touch from God? Like I would say we do. Like people who stand will say, oh, you need a touch from God. No, no, I think we need a dose of wisdom as well. Right? Like, like, right? Like, like God is not duty bound to fix stupidity. Right? Nor is God duty bound to finish something he didn't initiate. Like people, people go, he who began a good work in you, right? Okay, faithful to complete. Yeah, if he began it. But when it's our poorly thought out idea that's not well researched and then we presume upon God's grace to fix stupidity, that's crazy, right? Like think about it. Think about the second temptation of Christ. What was it? It was, hey man, throw yourself off this mountain and because God has such a big plan for your life, he'll catch you probably, right? And remember Jesus' response? He's like, well, probably, but why would I test him when I could just not jump? Right? Like the, 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 the wisdom is, is, that, is that it is foolish to presume upon God's grace to fix stupidity that we could have just handled proactively anyway. Right? So there's, there's all of this stuff. Now, there, when the Jews make up 50, sorry, the Jews have 1% of the world's population and they have 50% of the world's wealth. They might be onto something. And most of them don't believe in Jesus, right? So it, it must be something that's principle. Now, when a Jew thinks about money, he thinks about it in five facets. Let me show you all five of these facets, if you could bring that next one up for me. The five facets are work, wisdom, honor, knowing God, and developing a lifestyle of sadaka or generosity. Now, for the sake of time, I can't go through all of them except for really quickly, okay? Let me handle it really quickly. Work. There's a cure for being broke. It's called get a job. Okay? This is Australia. You can be a flipping moron and make it here. You can have no skills and people will pay you a living wage. This is one of the greatest nations on earth. When I hear Australians complain about Australia, I'm like, mate, where are you going to go? Let me be blunt. If you can't make it here, where are you going to go? I had an 18-year-old tell me the other day he was paid $63 an hour to do a job. I think my response was literally, what? Right? Like, this is amazing. Get up. Go to work. If you're broke and I call you at 9.30 and wake you up, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom is simply spending less than you make and doing it for a very long time. Not hard. Well, it's not easy to implement, but it's not hard to conceive. Honor. Honor is your best life is found in a commitment to never purposely or intentionally harm another person. Even if they're different than you, you honor the image of God in all people because there's one Christ holding us all together. And if there's one Christ or one God holding us all together, then right, wrong, or indifferent, you're my brother, you're my sister, I could never purposely harm you because we are one. We are all creation being held together, right? So that's honor, right? But I want to focus the entire rest of the time on the last two, knowing God and developing a lifestyle of generosity. Because see, knowing God's an issue because if I say, I say, man, we just need to know God. People go, yeah, but then the problem isn't, the problem isn't, no one, no, if I said, we need to know God more, no one would go, no! We need to know him less. No one would do that, right? But here's the problem with saying knowing God. It's not the doctrine of knowing God. It's whatever imagination we have of what that looks like. So some people go, well, knowing God means knowing the Bible more. But then that leads to all kinds of questions like, what about the people who knew God that didn't ever have a Bible? Because the fact, the idea that we 
could have our own Bible is a relatively new thing. And what about that? And so, and so, or, or, or knowing God is, is not making mistakes. It's like, wait a minute, hang on. What, what, are, you, what are you talking about here? Actually, as far as I know, there's only one definition in the whole Bible of what it means to know God. One. It's referenced later, but the original reference is this. This is Jeremiah twenty two sixteen. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And so all went well. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God. In other words, when you do something for someone who can't do anything in return for you, it is in that moment that you get to know God, for that is what God did for the whole world. And this follows, this follows that pattern through Scripture. Like there's lots of people who weren't theologically correct that God called righteous because of their generosity. Acts chapter 10, there's a guy named Cornelius. There, you have never met a human being more theologically jaded than Cornelius. First of all, he had no theological background. He was a military guy. Second of all, to be a Roman military officer, you had to proclaim Caesar is Lord. This guy was so clueless, he didn't even know Peter wasn't God. Now that is about as elemental of an error as you can get. Hey, Peter, you're here. You must be God. That is, woohoo, right? He gets, the, the, the story is so elemental that Peter has to tell the man, don't bow to him, right? This is like theology 101, don't bow to men. And Cornelius is a little confused. He's like, you're not, you're not God? No, I'm not God. I'm Peter, right? And, and then Peter, and so Cornelius says, why, why are you here? And Peter says, because God wants you to pastor the first church. And Cornelius' response would be like, what? I didn't even know you weren't God. I'm not ready to pastor. He goes, no, no, you're ready to pastor. He says, because your generosity to the poor has already went up as a remembrance to God, and he counted you righteous based on that. Right? Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God? So, so the question is, is do, here's my question, right? Scariest scripture in the whole Bible to me. Matthew 7, Jesus said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I, 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 I don't know you. And, and if you go read it, the, the people he doesn't know are confused. Remember? He says, he, he says, no, I don't know you. And they go, what do you mean you don't know us? We cast out devils in your name. We prophesy, we perform miracles. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? What, what's so convicting to me about this is that there's a group of people at the end of the day who think they're in, but they're actually out, right? And then, and then Jesus goes, and they're surprised. And he, they go, wait a minute, wait, we prophesied. So Jesus is like, hey, there's a lot of people at the end of the day, they think they're in, but they're actually out. And, and then he goes on to describe Pentecostal leaders, right? Which is weird because I'm a Pentecostal leader, right? Like, who, who else is prophesying, casting out devils, and performing miracles, right? Baptist in Cleveland, they're safe, right? It's, it's, it's us, right? It's, I mean, I've prophesied on occasion. I've cast out devils twice. I'm not a big fan of it, right? right? If you're here today and you have a devil, see him. He'll sort you out. I don't really, I'm not a fan. But I think it needs to be done. I mean, in my experience, the less demons, the better. But it's scary, right? Anyway, it, it Jesus goes, but I didn't know you. It's, it's so, it's so for Jesus, he, this, thing, this thing of knowing God, this thing of knowing God sort of followed him around. It followed Paul around. This idea, it was a scriptural pattern of, of when you do stuff this ceremony. First John, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. This is the idea. The idea is creating a habit in our life where we regularly engage in something for someone who can do nothing in return for us. So that's knowing God. The, the last one is... Uh, is sedaka or generosity, developing a generous spirit. And it's where I want to park for the rest of the time. It's, it's interesting. Generosity in Hebrew is the word sedaka. I love that. So with some go to womba gusto, can you say that with me? Say sedaka. Ready? Go. Sedaka. All right. Now, now it's an interesting play on words because, because the word for righteous in Hebrew is sedak. 
So, so, so do you hear the similarity? Sadak? Sadaka? Sadak? Sadaka? Hit that next slide for me. Sadak? Sadaka? There are 2,106 verses of scripture. Someone count it. 2,106 verses of scripture that tie righteousness to generosity. So once again, if I say we need to be a more righteous people, no one goes, no, we need more wickedness. No, the problem isn't the doctrine. The problem is our imagination of what that means. To my grandmother's generation, not smoking, not drinking, not going to movies, that meant you were righteous. But in the Hebrew tradition, righteousness wasn't tied to what you abstained from. Righteousness was tied to what you engaged in for somebody who could do nothing in return for you. It was even in the language. Sadak, righteous. Sadaka, generous. Sadak, righteous. Sadaka, generous. A Sadak man does Sadaka. Duh, right? This is where we get the word deacon from, by the way. So, so, so in the first century, the people who collected the alms for the poor were called the deacons. The, the, the word for deacon in Hebrew is sadika, right? The collectors of righteousness. The people who are collecting things for people who could nothing in return for them. Now, 2,106 verses of scripture connect righteousness to generosity. I, I, I figured I'd show you all of them, right? No, I'm just joking, right? Ne- ne- next slide. This is Psalm, this is just a few. This is Psalm 37 verse 25. I've been young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the Sadak righteous, forsaken, or seed begging bread. For all the day long, he deals generously, Sadaka, and lends freely, and his seed is blessed. Now, now in English, there's a separation. In Hebrew, it's not. Oh, a Sadak man does Sadaka. Of course he does. A, a righteous person does generous. I, of course. Of course. It's Psalm 112, verse 5. A righteous man shows generosity. In Hebrew, that would literally say, a Sadak man shows Sadaka. Now, of course, of course. What else would he be doing? What else would a Sadat man be doing? Here's James chapter 1. If anyone considers himself religious and does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted from... In other words, doing something for someone who can do nothing in return for you. That's not the world's way. It's Sadak, Sadaka. Now, here's the question, right? If I was to say, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We need more righteousness. We need to know God. No one disagrees with that. You can't. It's impossible. The question is, is what does that look like? And the ancient Jews had this system that they called Sadaka. And I want to show you this system of how to handle money. Because the question would be, how do I know when I've engaged in righteousness? What, what do I do? And here, here was their system. I find their system brilliant. It's the reason 1% of the world has 50% of the, of the wealth, right? Check this out. Here's what they did. First, this is the summary. They, they would do something in Hebrew called the Ma'aser Rishon. The Ma'aser Rishon. The Ma'aser Rishon is something we're very familiar with. That would be the top, one-tenth to your church community, to, to, your, to your holy community, to your spiritual community, right? That was called the Ma'aser Rishon. Now, here's the problem with tithing. And here's why our imaginations get jacked up with it, right? Here's the problem. Is in Hebrew, there are three tithes. In English, there's one word, tithe. And so it gets translated the same way, which makes it sound like it's everywhere. But actually, there's three, right? So the first tithe, a tithe just means a tenth, was called the Ma'aser Rishon. And that was a part of their community, their way of life. Now, now the second one, though, was equally important. Let me show you that one. The second one, next one, is called the Ma'aser Shani. that was one-tenth to yourself. Now, here's my question, right? How many of us, and let's be honest, don't answer me out loud, it's rhetorical, right? How many of us before we walked in here today, when we thought about the word tithe in our imagination, it included a mandate to save for my family? 
right? And this is what set me free, is when I realized that God was just as interested in me saving money as he was in me giving money. Why? Because to be a reasonable person in creation, you have to master the art of both giving and receiving. You can't just master one, you'll die, right? So the Ma'asr Rishon was the tenth of the church, but the Ma'asr Shani was a mandate to save 10% yourself. And here's the wisdom in that, right? If you're here today and you're over the age of 60 and you were honest, if you had saved 10% of your income your entire working life, how much money would you have today? The answer is a lot. Even, even, if you, even if you never worked anywhere but, say, a McDonald's or KFC or something like that, even if you were on that kind of wage from 16 to 60, you would be worth over a million dollars if you habitually and disciplined save 10% your whole life. This is genius stuff. And then they would save it to their children's children. I'm so thankful to my mother. I didn't know about this. I couldn't read the Bible. I was four. I think I was 27 before I realized there were people who didn't tithe, right? But my, but my mother, my mother, because the way you grow up, you think is normal, right? My, my mother, when I was four, if my granny gave me a dollar, I'd have to go break it into 10, 10 cent pieces. And I'd have to put 10 cent in the church offering plate. And then she, I, I can't even imagine this because this was before online banking. She would take the time to take my four-year-old behind to a bank, sit down and fill out a deposit slip for 10 cent just to build the discipline in my life. This is how you do it. This is how you do it. My entire life, I've saved 10% of my income since I was four. And listen, I've been a pastor my whole life. I've never made a wage that would make any of you go, wow, oh, but the discipline of saving 10% over that course of time, now my investments are starting to compound in a way where I can't possibly keep up. And that is wisdom. That is wisdom. So the, the master Rashawn, then the second was master Shani. The third one was called the master Annie. This was one tenth to the poor. And it was given in lieu of every third master Shani. Let me see if I can explain it this way. In January, they did it by years. We get paid by months, so I do it by months. So in January and February, I'll save, a ten, I'll save 10% of myself. In March, instead of giving it to myself, we give it to the poor. In April and May, 10% to yourself. In June, instead of giving it to yourself, you give it to the poor, right? This, is, this was their system. And here's what they called it. They called that system Sadaka. Sadaka. They added one little thing to it. It was called the Taruma. I don't want to get into that today, but it was just a, it was a small one fortieth offering to, to your spiritual leader or to your pastor, right? Right? So it was a little, it was, it was a very small, holy offering. Is is $25 on a thousand, right? It was very, very small. It'd be, it'd be like giving up Coke or something, right? Like to, to do it, like drinking Coke, not sniffing Coke. Sniffing Coke is more right? Right? And so, so you have this guy, they, they called this Sadaka. They call it stuff. Now, a couple of observations about this to bring this into our world. First, in Jesus' world, being a Christian was more about a new way of being in the world than it was about going somewhere else. When the primary questions are, where do we go when we die? Where do we go when we die? Where, it sometimes alleviates us from the required wrestling of our role of saying yes to the infinite possibilities God has for us to bring heaven here, right? And in Jesus' day, it was about that. Let's say it this way. In Jesus' world, the focus was less on what you believe and more on how you believe what you believe. Doctrine was still being worked out. People would ask first century Christians, hey, are you Jew? Are you, are you Judaism people? No, no, we think God's bigger than that. So, so are you like a Roman God worshiper? No, we're somewhere in the middle. I mean, Christians in the first century were executed by Trajan for the charge of atheism. Because Trajan was like, well, wait a minute, if you're not a Jewish follower, 
person and you're not one of us, then you're somewhere in the middle. We, you need to go, right? So, so, so before doctrine was really even as it was being worked out, the focus had to be on how you believe what you believe. It's not so much, it's not so much that you believe in Jesus. It's what does that belief in Jesus and connection with that? How does that affect how you treat your neighbor? right? Like, so what if you understand the mysteries of 18 heavens? If you have not love, what are you? You're a clanging symbol. Like, it doesn't matter the boredom of the doctrinal discussions I hear. Like, you know, Shane, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about, listen, I don't care if you think God is a nine-sided cube and the Antichrist is an eight-year-old Chinese boy named Tong Nguyen. If, if you can't tell me, well, what does that matter? What does that mean? And if you believe that and you said, you know what, here's what that means. I am going to be committed. I'm so inspired by that. I'm going to be committed to centering our world around the risen Christ and being nice to our neighbor. Whatever, I just applaud it, right? It's, it's not so much what we believe, it's how we believe what we believe. Let's, let's say it this way. Three, to be against tithing is like saying, I find no responsibility to my community, my family, or the poor. That's all tithing was. Tithing was a framework by which we intentionally bless our pastor, bless our church, bless our family, and bless the poor. Who could be against that? So if people say, I'm against tithing, I'm like, which part? Are you against saving for yourself? Are you actually against not, are you actually against taking care of poor people? Are you against participating in your role in our community? That's all tithing was. Tithing was just a framework to be intentional about taking care of your pastor, taking care of your church, taking care of yourself, and taking care of the poor. Who could possibly be against that? Like if someone said, no, I find no responsibility for my place in my community, no responsibility for my family, and no responsibility for the poor and the marginalized. That person would be perhaps the biggest jerk you could ever imagine. And here's, I want people to understand this. When people say, I'm against tithing, I know in their mind that's not what they mean, because you can't be against that. The problem isn't the tithe. The problem is their imagination of what that tithe means. And they're standing against that. And some of those imaginations should be stood against. But we should recapture this word as a beautiful word. That means play your part in the community. Play your part in your family. And play your part to the poor. Say yes to the dance that God is doing in our world instead of standing in the corner watching everybody else. It's that. Who could be against that? Let's say it this way. To be a functioning part of any part of creation, we've got to master the art of giving and receiving. You can't master the art of giving without mastering the art of receiving. You'll be broke. You'll be broke. If all you do is give out and you never receive, you're going to be broke. You're going to be broke. That's unwise. It's unwise. You can't, you can't do that. Nor, nor can you master the art of receiving without mastering the art of giving. You'll die. Like if everybody takes a deep breath in and then you just choose not to breathe back out. At some point you'll faint because your body will make you breathe back out, right? Right? You can't, if you eat three meals a day and never go to the bathroom, you'll die. Or you'll wish you were dead, right? I mean, at some point, brother's got to receive. And then a brother's got to give, right? The, the only thing they know of on earth that receives without giving is the Dead Sea. And nothing can live there. Why? Because when you receive without giving... You, d- you stagnate, you die. But, but also, if you give without mastering the art of receiving, you're going to be very frustrated and broke. The, the, beauty, the beauty of the way God set this thing up was it, it, it built a framework for mastering the art of receiving 
and mastering the art of giving in a way that creates a symbiosis that allows every functioning thing in creation to do that. Leaves. What if the trees rebelled and said, no more breathing out for the humans, right? And, and, well, then the humans die, but then the trees die. Th- this, is, this is how the word works. It's called symbiosis, right? We, we, have, to, we have to operate that way. Let, let, let's say it this way. Number five, tithing is an excellent framework to work out heart and lifestyle of generosity in my life. But let's just be clear. It's just a framework. It's an excellent framework, but it's a framework. There's a more profound truth. that I, don't even, I haven't thought about tithing in 10 years. And it's just because we do so much more than that, it's not even a thing anymore. Because the framework is just meant to build habits of lifestyle that we now wake up. The word has become flesh, for instance. It's, it's, I don't even think about this lifestyle anymore. It's just a part of me. The goal is to, for the word to become flesh. The framework is meant to develop trust and sadaka, Because nothing develops trust like spontaneous giving. Nothing, hey, hey, nothing will overcome your fear of lack like being spontaneously generous. Nothing. And, and I want to be clear about this. Men struggle with this more than women. And here's the reason why, right? The reason why is because a man's biggest fear is being seen by his peers or his spouse as not enough. That's our biggest fear. Let me let you in on that, ladies, right? Our biggest fear is not whether you love us or not. We don't actually care about that that much. We, we, we know you do. It's not a thing, right? right? Our biggest fear is that you don't find us attractive anymore. Look at us, right? We gave up on that a long time ago, right? right? Here's the thing, right? Here's the, a woman's biggest fear is being, do you, do you love me still despite the changes in my body? This is why if a, if a married couple is, is out at a restaurant in Toowoomba, right? And they're having a date. And let's say the prettiest woman in Toowoomba walks by. I'm telling you right now, if the prettiest woman in Toowoomba walked into the restaurant, the men don't notice first. The women do. And they hate her. Right? She comes in, prettiest woman in Toowoomba. And and, and the prettiest woman in Toowoomba walks by, physically, right? And and the man goes, Woo! Yes, sir! Get you some of that! Well, that's going to hurt her feelings. Right? But men don't understand that because we have a different fear. Like if the best looking man in Toowoomba walked by. I'm talking about like underwear model, eight pack, right? 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 If the best looking man in Toowoomba walked by, men don't care if their wives notice that. Like if the man walks by and the woman goes, yes, sir. Whoa, that is one good looking hunk of a man. We don't care. We'd be like, well, get preheated. You're coming home with me. Whatever. You know? (laughs) Honestly. Sir, could you come over? Show her your abs. Just makes my job easier later. Just, just get her, you know. Right? We don't care, right? But here's the thing, right? If at the same meal, the wife says, "Hey, did you hear about Johnny? He he got three raises last year. He now makes twice as much money as you. I wish you were that successful." Ooh. Why? Because a man's biggest fear is being seen as not enough. And that fear is conquered through spontaneous and intentional generosity. It's the way to beat it. Now, there's four principles here I want to quickly walk walk through. One is giving and receiving. Mastering the art of giving and receiving is critical to being a viable part of creation. You can't exist without. Two is echad. Echad is a Hebrew word that means unity and diversity. That we are not isolated from everything else going on. Paul uses incredibly broad language about this. The spirit of the risen Christ is filling everything in every way. 
He is holding all things together. For by him and through him were all things created and in him all things hold together. In other words, there's a dance to be a part of. There's a plan to be a part of. And it's not, and we can't be, and if we isolate it, if we isolate ourselves from that dance, it, it has, has horrendous ramifications in the long haul. My question is, is not are you a tither? My, my question is, is, have you said yes to the dance? And, and in saying yes to the dance, what part are you playing? Are you out of step? And, and where, where, where do we need to make sure we're taking care of our community, our family, and the poor? Let, let, let's, let's say it this way. No, number three is tikkun olam, the repairing of the world. This is a phrase the rabbis would use to say, we, we, we don't need to be focused on somewhere else. We need to look around and repair our world around us. We need to be a part of that. And that is so compelling and so much more compelling than, hey, you're 16, pray a prayer once and then wait till 107 to die. That, no, Christianity is much better than that. It's much more. When I've heard people go, I think Christianity is boring. I'm like, I've never, I've never met someone who thought Christianity was boring that I disagreed with. Because once I talked to them and said, tell me about what you think Christianity is. Well, isn't that where you believe the certain things when you're a kid and then you go to heaven after death? Well, if that's Christianity, that needs to be resisted. Because the good news is much better than that. We can participate with the tikkun olam, the repairing of the world. The fourth principle is tzedakah. Righteousness and generosity. That in a Hebrew imagination, righteousness was not what you abstained from. Righteousness was what you entered into. When we do something for somebody with no expectation of return for ourselves, it's in that moment we get to know God. Why? Because that's what God did for the world. That in that sense, God is not somebody we love. God is somebody we find in the act of love itself. That when we love, it's there we find the presence of God. The most profound sense of His presence is when we're doing something for somebody who can do nothing in return. Now, a couple questions. Good sermons aren't meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So let's wrestle. One, are we participating in the bigger story of God's unfolding grace to the world? Are we saying yes to the dance or are we waiting to go to heaven? Are we participating in that? Two, are we in the dance or sitting it out? Number three, I think a profound question we need to ask, and not in a flippant way, but in a deep, heartfelt way, is do we actually trust God as our source? Do we actually trust that he's got this thing? And I, I got to tell you, if we don't tr- in today's world, if we don't trust God by now, I don't know. We, we've got more money than ever. Like God has shown himself faithful to be a provider. Like look at our life. We have motor cars, paved roads, stores that prepackage food for us, clean water in our taps. Like you imagine if your great, great grandfather came back from the dead and your task was you had three days to convince him how hard the world is compared to what he had. Like what? Like you imagine that? Like this is just the best. God has been a good provider. He's been a good provider. If you can't trust him by now, what what now? Number four, am I saving for my future? I think we need to ask that question. I think we need to wrestle with that. Because here's the thing, time flies. You think I got plenty of time to do that, and then you're then you wake up one day, you're 52. You're like, oh, no. (laughs) Am am I saving for my future? Have I mastered the art of receiving as well? Let me say it this way. What have we done recently for someone who can do nothing in return? Or maybe a more profound way to ask that question is, what have we done recently for someone with no expectation of a return? It's in that moment we start to get to know the heart of God for people. Six, do we know him? Do we know him? 
I think this is by far the most important question I could ask today. If you had to stand in front of Jesus today, would he say, oh, I know you. I know you. Hey, hey, I know you. If you had to stand in front of Jesus today, does he know you? The last one is this. Next slide. Are you willing to start today working a framework to develop a generous spirit? Working a framework to develop a generous spirit is simply simply starting where the starting points are, developing, developing that into a lifestyle, and saying yes to participate in the infinite possibilities God has for his dance between him and his creation that includes us. Who could be against that? So, for those of you who suspended your imagination of what tithing is, I hope I just gave you a far more compelling one. Participate with your community. Participate with your family. Participate with the poor. Do things for others with no expectation of return. For that is what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God. May we know him. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We proclaim your king. There's none like you. We bring our fears and our doubts and our trust to you. Why don't you just right there under your breath, why don't you just say a prayer like this? Lord, I'm choosing again to trust you as my source. Maybe you need to make a decision this morning that says, I'm making a decision to trust you with my life. You could just feel that God moving at your heart thing. And it's, and it's just simply like, hey, well, t- today I'm going to make a decision that God's version of my life story is better than the one I've written on my own. I'm going to trust that version. May we be a generous people. Why don't you just make a a, a quiet commitment right where you're sitting to say yes to the dance. I'm going to participate. I'm not going to sit on the sideline. I'm going to participate. Lord, would you give us the grace to master the art of giving and receiving. Give us the grace to see things different and the irresistible urge to respond to what we see. Amen.